We're currently in a sermon series. We're working through the books of First and Second Samuel. And one of the things we've seen is this book is filled with all kinds of exciting stories. And while today's passage is interesting, it is not as exciting as some of the passages that we've looked at over the last few weeks. But I want to say this, if you listen closely today, you'll see that it does have the ability to change your life. It does have the ability to turn everything that you believe upside down. And so with that, I'd ask, ask you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to read 1 Samuel 16, um, verses 1 through 13 together. Remember last week we saw the corruption of Saul that is, and it has led to his downfall as king and in our passage the Lord is, is, is having a new king anointed. Beginning with verse 1 it says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? He says, fill your horn with oil and I want you to go. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Verse 4 says that Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Now something I've been doing each week, I've been providing these maps. I'm going to ask, you've got, one, you've got one in your bulletin, and people have told me these maps are helpful. I didn't necessarily need a map for today, but if you can put it up on the screen, go ahead. Um, if you look that Rama is located up, up north, and that's where, that's where Samuel lives. That's the prophet of God lives. And Bethlehem is down in the south, all right? And to get there, Samuel has to travel through Gibeah, which is King Saul's hometown. And when Samuel moves around, it's, it's known, so Saul would know that he's coming through town. He doesn't stop at Gibeah, but he goes down to Bethlehem, all right? And so, just to give you a little perspective of where this is happening, okay? Back to the passage. In verse 4, it says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. As the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? I mean, Bethlehem's a little town. I mean, why would, why would Samuel, the prophet of Israel, come to this little rinky-dink town? Must have done something wrong. You got guilty consciousness. So they asked, do you come peaceably? And, and Samuel said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And he says, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he took Eliab and he thought, sure, and Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. 
And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are you sure all your sons are here? And he said, well, there remains one. He's the youngest. His name is Cinderella. (laughs) But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel then rose and went up and went back to Ramah. May God richly bless the reading of his word. Amen. Heavenly Father, I I pray that my brothers and sisters will be able to follow me today. That they would be encouraged. And that we would be reminded of kind of how to read our Bibles. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now we've seen over the last few weeks that while Saul is indeed the rightful king of Israel, that because of his arrogance, his rashness, and his willfulness, that kingdom is being taken away and it's being given to another. And and in today's passage, we see that it's going to be given to David. Now, while David is anointed in today's passage, it's actually going to be about another 20 years before he actually ascends to the throne. Right? And between now and the end of the school year we are going to see that, that David was a warrior, he was a hero, he was a musician, he was a poet, and eventually, as I said, he will be a king. His life is filled with all kinds of extremes. I mean, he goes from seclusion to fame, from nobody to somebody, for, from least to the greatest, from the pasture to the palace, and from uh, running for his life to, to running a nation. I mean, it's massive, all the extremes in his life. Now, as I introduced myself earlier, if you're visiting, my name is David. And I, I can clearly remember bedtime, my mom would often remind me, she would say, your name means beloved. It, your name means loved by God. And I, I could vividly remember her reminding me of that on, on a regular basis. And, and, and that explains why the name David is so popular. It is the second most popular name in the United States. One out of every 28 set of parents named their, their son David. In fact, there, there is 12 million of us running around this country. And statistically, that means there's about 254 being added to this fine institution every day. The record of David's life, it's contained beginning in the passage we just read. It's contained in... 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it concludes in 1 Kings chapter 2. And here's an interesting fact. This is the largest narrative of a single life in all of ancient literature. Um, Nowhere in all of antiquity do we know as much about anyone as we know about David. I mean, even, even if a person has never read 
their Bible before, it is likely that they probably have heard the story of David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba. And while David is referred to 600 times in the Old Testament and 60 times in the New Testament, what, what's mo- what the most important clue to the significance in his life is, is the three angelical announcements that we get in the Gospels. In one angelic announcement about the birth of Christ, in one angelical announcement, it is declared that, that, uh, that Jesus would be, that the Messiah would be born in the city of David. In, the, in, in David's hometown was Bethlehem. And so, so the angelical announcement is he's going to be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. Another angelical announcement says that he is going to be born in the house of David. In other words, he's going to be the Messiah. Jesus is going, this Messiah coming is going to be a, a descendant of King David. And Jesus was. It was also declared in an, angelical, in an angelic visit that, that he would sit on the throne of David. In other words, just as David was king, Jesus, this child, this Messiah, would one day be king as well. Again, David's name means beloved. It means loved by God. And another phrase that we often hear uh, referring to David is the phrase that he was a man after God's own heart. Most of you probably heard that David was a man after God's own heart. And, 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 and that phrase actually comes from a passage we read a couple weeks ago. While I didn't mention who David was at the time, um, Samuel was talking to Saul and saying, listen, your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. He says, in, in, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, he says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. And then today, in today's passage, we find out that is David. Now, I want to take a couple minutes here, and I want to... St- I, I, I want us to ask the question, what in the world would qualify somebody for such a lofty and exalted description? Man after God's own heart. Well, while the phrase and the title comes from 1 Samuel 13, the Apostle Paul repeats it for us in Acts chapter 13. Look at this with me. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, listen, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he, of whom God testified. And God said this of David. He said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will, who will, do, all, who, who will do all my will. Now, I don't know if you just saw it or not. But the answer as to why David was considered a man after God's own heart, the, the reason this lofty, phrase was applied to him is found right in the passage that we just read. What seems to have set David apart from everyone else, according to the Apostle Paul, was that he would do all my will. God said he would do all my will. What set David apart was that he had a deep desire to do God's will in his life. That he was willing to do whatever it was that God wanted him to do. That's what made him a man after God's own heart. And over the next several months, we are going to see that David repeatedly displays a, a quite remarkable faith um, in God. Even when he finds himself in the midst of one incredible challenge after another. For example, next week we're going to see David's faith as he faces off against Goliath. That's our passage for next week. It, it seems like if you read the, this, this historical biography of David... It seems that he was fully aware that God was in control of his life. 
that God was to be not just trusted but also obeyed and that God had the ability to deliver him from even the most dire and difficult circumstances. We see this over and over again with him. And we will see over and over again that David's faith pleased the Lord and that the Lord rewarded David for his faith. You know, one of the places where we learn um, about David's character the most is in the book of Psalms. There are 150 Psalms and David is credited for having um, written a little more than half of them. Um, And while so many of them are written at various and often troubling times, it is the Psalms that David, it is in the Psalms that David repeatedly declares how much he loves God's, what he calls God's perfect word. For example, in Psalm 119, he says this, he says, For I find delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. So David loved the commands of God. He loved the word of God. Now, like all of us, David's life was marked by seasons of sorrow and unrest, but they were also, it was also marked by seasons of peace and prosperity. And we're going to see that regardless of the season, David never failed to thank the Lord for everything that he had. So gratitude was one of his greatest characteristics. Something else we're going to see as we work through First and Second Samuel, and I have said this, I think, almost in every sermon that I preached for the last nine weeks, we're going to see in First and Second Samuel is that these are historical books. They are designed to give us an historical record of what actually happened. So we are also going to see that while David did indeed have a heart for God, that he did demonstrate an incredible faith, his life was anything, and I mean anything, other than perfect. We're going to see that while David's life is, is, is a portrait of success, we're going to see that it is also a portrait of failure. And, as we've already seen over the past several weeks, we're going to see that the scriptures, once again, make absolutely no attempt to hide the shortcomings of God's people. Makes no attempt to gloss over David's failures, even the horrendous ones. Again, as I said a little bit ago, most people, even if they've never read the Bible, have heard the great story of David and Goliath. But they've also heard the story of David and Bathsheba, where he commits adultery, gets her pregnant, and then begins deceiving and creating deception, ends up murdering her, murder, having her husband Uriah murdered in order to cover it up. And so an obvious and a a fair question that that you might have is, that somebody might ask is, how could David still be called a man after God's own heart? How could David continue to be referred to as a man of great faith after after committing such heinous act of adultery and then deception and even murder? And we're going to talk about more about this in, what, 10, 12 weeks when we get to that, that story of David and Bathsheba. But let me just say this. The answer is found in David's repentance. After David's sin with Bathsheba was exposed, he demonstrated for us a model of true and genuine repentance. He acknowledged that his sin was first and foremost against God, and then 
He cried out to God for mercy. And as I said, we'll talk about more about this when we get to that particular passage. But something I want you to look at with me is Psalm 51, which is David's great confession of his sin with Bathsheba. In verses 1 and 2, he says, look what he says with me. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. So David demonstrates, and granted, we, we boil all this down into a little flowery, nice sounding, you know, a couple verses. But this was a long, hard process to, for David to go through. And we'll talk about that more when we get there. Um, now, as we work through the first and second Samuel, we're going to see that David's sin with Bathsheba it continued to have lasting consequences in his life, painful ones. But it also appears that David was able to find not just forgiveness, but he was also able to find a sense of peace from the terrible things that he had done. And that's the kind of peace we all want in our lives, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I know Jesus says... That if a man looks at another woman with lust, he's committed adultery in his heart. And so in that sense, I, along with every other man and even woman in this room, we are all, I'm guilty of adultery. I'm guilty of it in, in the sense that Jesus talked about it, all right? Um, uh, when it comes to, but, but, but when it comes to the, the sin of actually having an affair uh, of of actually committing adultery with another person. Um, most of us in this room, I know there's some who are, but most of us in the room um, have not committed adultery, okay? Um, Jesus also said if a man is angry with his brother and calls him Raka, that he is guilty of murder. All right? And, and, and while we're all guilty in that sense, um, I know there's people in here um, who have had abortions and been involved in abortions. And, and so those of us, are, we are guilty of that if, if, that, if that's the case. But, but the reality is most of us in here are not guilty of taking another, another life in order to cover up our sin. Um, but the fact is, most of us, we, we read these stories of his adultery with Bathsheba and this murder that he committed, and we think, well, I, I could never, I would never do something like that. I'm just not that, that bad. But the reality is, given the right circumstances, we are all capable of far worse than we really think we are. And if you think you're not, you, you really ought to rethink this. I, I remember, my goodness, has it been close to 15 years ago when Tiger Woods' life blew up? Remember that? I mean, I mean, it was all over the news, and, and, and I was talking to a neighbor, and he didn't know me very well at the time because I'd just moved into my house, and, and I know what he was expecting from me. He was expecting me just to, to tear into Tiger Woods for his immorality and what have you. And, and, and so I remember talking to him, and I said, you know what? Um, I love my wife and my, my children, and I have been faithful to my wife and my children. My wife for nearly 30 years, my children for 25. Um, but I don't have the kind of travel schedule that Tiger Woods has. 
I don't have the kind of women throwing themselves at me that he has throwing at him. I don't have the kind of money and resources and finances to cover up my sin. I think I love my wife, and I do. <laughs> we all think we love our wives. We, we all think that we have this sense of character and integrity, but, but we don't have the kind of temptations that Tiger Wood has. The Lord shields us and protects our lives in ways that, that his is not. So the reality is when we're, none of us can be absolutely sure what, how grievous of sins we could be actually capable of. So it requires a deep sense of humility. All right? I want to shift gears here. When we read passages from the, Old Ten from the Old Testament like this, we have a tendency to read them as if they are stories with a moral lesson for us to learn of how we're either to live or to not live. We tend to think of them uh, that, that, we, that we are to identify ourselves with the characters either positively or negatively. That's often when we read an Old Testament narrative, that's, that's typically what we do. And, and if you do that, if you do what most people do, you'll think to yourself that, well, it says right here that David was a man after God's own heart. And you'll think, well, okay, God looked in David's heart and saw that it was good, and therefore what I need to do is I need to make my heart good like David's. And you will spend your life trying to build a resume, trying to, trying to prove to yourself and to the world and to the Lord that, that, that you have a good heart. But here's the problem with that. If you read the Bible from a, what is called a moralistic perspective, thinking that you have to put yourself into David's shoes, it will destroy you. The reason it will destroy you is because whenever you believe that you've lived up to the Bible standards, you will become puffed up, you'll become proud, you'll become self-righteous. And whenever you believe that you failed, you become disheartened, discouraged, and, and self-loathing. And you will spend your entire life on an emotional roller coaster based upon how you interpret your obedience before the Lord. And here's the other thing. Ultimately, your life will not change. And you're going to miss out on what the Scriptures are really telling us. What's going to happen is you're going to begin to think that your forgiveness is based upon the depth of your sorrow. And the depth of your sorrow has to be based upon the depth of, your, of how you interpret your sin. But, but you're not going to be looking at the, your forgiveness based upon what, that, that it's been transferred to Christ. Talk about that here in a little bit. You're going to think that, that God's favor is based upon your good deeds. But on the other hand, if you understand that the record of David's life is first and foremost a glimpse into the heart and into the mind of God, if you understand that it is first and foremost that it gives us an understanding of God's character and how he operates, then and only then will you begin to see that David's acceptance was not based upon his own character, but rather it was based upon God's. You will begin to see that your acceptance by God is also not based upon your character either, but rather it's based upon the character of the Lord. 
It's based not upon what you bring to the table, but it is based upon what he has already brought to the table. You begin to see that your forgiveness is not based upon the intensity of your sorrow, but rather on the character of God. You know, a minute ago, we read David's model of, of confession in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. I'd like for you to put it back up on the screen if you would. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. Look at this again with me. We'll look slowly. I want to wait till we can get it up here. I, it wasn't planned, so uh, don't blame Peyton. There, thank you, Peyton. Look at this with me. When David's sin with Bathsheba was exposed, look what he says. He says, he does, he cries out, he says, have mercy on me. All right? So he demonstrates his sorrow, but look what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, look, according to your steadfast love. He doesn't say, have mercy on me according to my love. He says, Lord, oh Lord, have mercy on me according to the Lord's steadfast love. Look at the next verse. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, David understands that the washing and the cleansing that he needs is something that has to be done for him. It's not something that he can do on his own. It's not based on what he does. It's based upon what the Lord must do for him. So every week, between now and the end of the school year, when we get through this series, I'm going to continue to try to remind you how to read your Bibles. I'm going to continue to try to remind you that the, these stories are not about you, but rather they are about somebody much greater. They're, they're really about Christ. And, and if you haven't listened at all up to this point, listen to me now, okay? Here's something that, that, that I, I, you need to understand and that can change your life if, if, you, if you get this. First of all, as I'm going to repeat again. When we read the Old Testament, we must not read as if it's about us and our identity and identifying with the character. It's not a moral story, but rather it's about Christ. It's always... Here's the thing. First thing is you need to understand that this is not something that you have to have a seminary degree to understand. It's not just something that Bible scholars get, all right? But, but rather, we can all understand this, that the Old Testament is really about Jesus, all right? The second thing I want you to know is that this is not something that I have made up as your pastor. <laughs> this is not unique to Presbyterians. It's not unique to, to Reformed theology. Um, it's not unique to our branch of the kingdom. It's just not. But rather, this is something that Jesus himself taught. In fact, look at me at John chapter 5 with me. And in John chapter 5, Jesus is confronting a group of, of Jewish men about the scriptures. In John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, he says, he tells these men, he says, you guys, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he basically tells them, you know what, you're right, that eternal life can be found in the scriptures. He says, you, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. Remember, this was first century. They didn't have the New Testament yet. He's got to be talking about the Old Testament. And remember, this is Jesus that's teaching this. 
He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then in verse 46, he says this. He says, for if you believed Moses, remember Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Remember? Got five. Um, He says, if you believed Moses, what Moses wrote, he said, you would believe me. And look what it says. For Moses wrote about me. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, the Old Testament scriptures are are primarily about me. They're pointing to me. And then on the day of, of, um, after, uh, three days after, the day of the resurrection, three days after the crucifixion, you you remember that, that Jesus, after his resurrection, he met two of the disciples on the road to Damascus. Now, they didn't recognize him. And they were feeling lost and confused over his death. And then the rumors of his resurrection were only confusing them even more. And so Jesus comes along and begins walking with them. And, and these guys, they just couldn't understand how the one that they had seen do so many incredible things, how the one that they believed was the anointed deliverer of Israel could have been executed on a cross like a common criminal. They just couldn't figure it out. And listen what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 24. You know, verse 25, he says, Oh, foolish ones. I think he's playing with them a little bit, but he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Look at this. Oh, foolish ones, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. The prophets are recorded in the Old Testament, right? And he goes on to say, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Look at this in verse 27. He says, and then beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So in other words, Jesus walks these guys through the Old Testament. And he interpreted to them all, in all the scriptures, the things, what? Concerning himself. In other words, Jesus basically says to him, he says, listen, the reason you don't understand your Bibles, the reason you feel so confused is because you've been looking at it all wrong. You've been reading it on, on a moralistic level. And you've been, prim- you, you, you think it's, you've been thinking that it's primarily about you rather than about me, but it's primarily about me. You know, I know a lot of you have grown up in church. And many of you have been reading your Bibles all your life. But you've been reading it all wrong, some of you. You've been reading as as if it's primarily about you. And what you are supposed to either do or not do. When it's really about him and what he must do for you. You know, I, I, I want to back up a little bit and I just want to be very, very clear. I am not saying that the Bible doesn't have any moral lessons for us. I am not saying that there's nothing about David's life that that we ought not try to emulate, okay? But when we read the Old Testament, when we come to, to these stories, we must understand that every prophet and every priest and every king is first and foremost pointing to the more perfect prophet, priest, or king. 
We need to understand that every prophet, priest, and king is actually a forerunner or a picture of the coming Messiah, of Jesus. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that this may be a new concept for some of you. But even for those of you, and I would include myself, um, who are familiar with this, this concept, it, it is still so easy for us to fall back into the old habits of reading these passages as if they're primarily about us and what we should do or what we shouldn't do. But this is essential for understanding the Bible. This is essential as we begin, as you read. I, can't, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for you in your, in your daily devotions and the week leading up to worship that you take time to read these passages before you come to worship and meditate upon these things and prepare yourself for worship. It, it will enhance your worship experience tenfold if you will do this. But, but when you do, it's essential that when you read these passages, it's essential that, that you read, understanding these are pointing to Jesus. And if you get this, it does have the ability to change life. Steve Lurson led us in, in, in congregational prayer today. And he pointed out that if we confess our sin, that the Lord is faithful and just... And he will forgive us from all our iniquities. But again, our forgiveness is not based upon our sorrow. It's not based upon the depth of our sorrow or in our regret or the genuineness of it. Yes, it needs to be genuine. But it's based on the fact that our sin was then taken from Christ, taken from us, and placed upon Christ. It didn't just get swept away. But it was placed upon Christ. See, our forgiveness is because our sin has been transferred to him who those in the Old Testament were looking forward to. And now we have the benefit of looking back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, so much of this feels like a Bible lesson and a sermon, but I pray that it would be a blessing to my brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to see you in as we work through the Old Testament scriptures. Lord, may we experience the kind of forgiveness that David experienced. But Lord, may we not just experience this feeling of forgiveness, but Lord, may we experience the peace that David received that we may find peace in our lives in spite of whatever sins or grievances we may have committed against you. Lord, may you forgive us according to your great mercy. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.